Again, thank you for being here. Ushers, if you'd come, we want to make ready to receive our offering. As they come, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 17. And Brother Clack, would you come and pray for tonight's offering, please? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house tonight again, Lord. And uh, we look forward to hearing from your word. And I pray that you would empower our pastor, Lord, and just fill him with your Holy Spirit as he teaches us from the word of God tonight. Um, ask, Lord, also, Lord, that you would bless this offering. Use it for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. As they're receiving the offering, just a couple of announcements for you. There'll be two opportunities for soul winning this week, Saturday, I'm sorry, Friday at 345, then Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Please join us for one or both of those. Uh, there was um, an item of money that was found um, in the elementary hallway recently. Uh, I thought it was Sunday, but it says here last Wednesday. Uh, if you happen to lose some money, you'll have to know exactly how much it is. Uh, the serial number, whose picture's on there, and who signed it. Um, no, if you lost some money, uh, if you would see Mrs. Clack on that, uh, we have it. Otherwise, we're just going to go ahead and put it in the offering, uh, but we didn't want somebody to lose that. It's not like going to pay your mortgage or anything, but uh, we would like to get that back to you. This coming Sunday evening, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper in the evening service, and so you're invited to come back and be a part of that. And as we've been announcing for the last several weeks, we are still in need of some nursery workers. Uh, so if you could help out ladies with that, uh, just see Mrs. Clack uh, or uh, Mrs. Seely or Mrs. Urbanowitz, and uh, they'll give you information. We're not asking you to be out every service or even every once a week. If you can help out once a month, uh, that would be a great blessing. And uh, so again, if you'll just let us know about that, we would be uh, glad to get you at, to be a part of it. Did you find Acts chapter 17 yet? Paul is in Europe. He is in the, uh, the region that today we call the country of Greece. And pretty much from the time he's gotten there, there has been persecution. First at Philippi, um, and they were beaten, thrown in prison, uh, and yet God delivered them in a miraculous way, and a great church was established there. He went from there to the city of Thessalonica, only there a brief time, three Sabbath days, about one month's worth of time, and uh, that erupted into persecution from the Jewish people in the synagogue that claimed to believe the scriptures, but uh, when it, it went against what they wanted, uh, it was kind of like, I know the Bible says, but uh, they stirred up the city in persecution, and uh, so Paul and his team left from there. Paul went from there to the city of Berea, uh, a very good synagogue of people. A lot of people got saved there, uh, and a great church was established. We don't know anything beyond about that church beyond Acts chapter 17, uh, but once again, persecution reared its ugly head, and the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica traveled 60 miles uh, just to stir up trouble, and the Berean people, for Paul's safety, sent him off. He was somewhat the lightning rod, and, and everywhere he went, uh, uh, the enemy rose up. By the way, the will of God is the best place you'll ever be. The will of God is the safest place you'll ever be, but the will of God is not always the easiest place. Uh, the devil's always going to fight us when we're doing that which God wants, and Paul and his team testify that. So we saw last week that Paul was sent to Athens by himself. Timothy and Silas are in Berea. It is believed that Luke is in Thessalonica, and they're all going to be reunited eventually uh, in the city of Athens, so he is waiting there. We saw in verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Somebody commented last Wednesday night, uh, we laid a lot of foundation just about the history of Athens and what it was like when Paul got there. Um, if you went to Las Vegas today, what would you expect to see everywhere? What, if you went to Las Vegas, what would you expect to see? What's that? Neon signs, but they're not there for Walmart. What are they? What are, what's it all about? It's all about casinos. 
Uh, I've never been in the city itself. I've flown in and out of the airport a few times. And even in the airport, you know, they have slot machines everywhere in in the airports and and stuff like that. And that's what you would see there. Um, If uh, Las Vegas was like Athens, you would see idols and statues and temples uh, everywhere that you look. The Bible said the city was wholly given to idolatry. I don't think we even comprehend the extent to which it was given. Athens was the center of learning in the ancient world. The Romans so respected the history of Athens that they granted it the status of of a Roman colony. They got special protection from the emperor. They were exempt from taxes to Rome. And uh, many of Rome, the Rome's, uh, Roman senators and leaders would either themselves go to Athens for education or they would often send their children there. Uh, it was like the Harvard, uh, Yale, uh, you know, all the Ivy League schools kind of all combined together. Um, and philosophy was born there. Uh, the rudiments of, of uh, geometry, algebra, uh, medicine, all types of things uh, were, were built there and expanded upon uh, in the city of Athens. But like a lot of places where education and intellect is exalted, uh, true faith was mocked uh, in, in a big way. In spite of the fact that everywhere you looked, there were temples and there were idols, um, it, it was a city that, that uh, when it came to, the, to truth, real Bible truth, uh, they would mock at it. We're going to see that as this chapter unfolds. Paul looked around this city, and he wasn't really taken in by the architecture and the history and, and all of that kind of stuff. His spirit was stirred in him. Uh, the, the, the term stirred uh, is actually a medical term. Uh, gives the idea inside he was in an uproar. Um, He just, everywhere he turned, it it, it just bothered him. By the way, sin ought to bother us. And I realize we see so much of it. We drive drive down highways and things are on billboards today that just uh, not that many years ago would never have been allowed to be put up in a public place where children especially could see them. Uh, We ought never get used to sin Uh, And Paul's spirit was stirred within him as a result of that, verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. That's where he always started. We learn from verses 2 or 3 that he always did the same thing. He wanted them to understand from their scriptures that Christ, the Messiah, uh, was going to suffer and die and be resurrected. And number two, that Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah and fulfilled all those scriptures. So he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, possibly referring to uh, Greeks and Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And in the market, uh, that place was called the Agora, uh, the market. It was more than just like a plaza uh, where they had a bunch of stores together. It was a vast uh, area uh, the size of several football fields, and you could purchase anything that you wanted from pretty much anywhere in the Roman world. It could be found there. You could buy cloth, you could buy food, uh, you could buy grain, you could buy jewels and things made of, of gold and silver, you could buy people. You could buy slaves pretty much everywhere. But the Agora also uh, was was filled with the the symbols of their paganism. And there were statues to their their pagan gods, their demigods, and and their heroes just everywhere that you went uh, and so forth. And so he's in the market. This is where the the average person would come. And he's just talking to anybody that he could about Christ. Look. We can get as mad as we want and be stirred in our spirit about the wrongs and the ills with our society, but what it ought to do is cause us to be more vehement in our sharing of the gospel. Um, That's where we differ from the Apostle Paul. We're vehement in sharing our political views. And I'm not necessarily saying that's the wrong thing, but that's our country doesn't need any more politics. Our country needs Jesus Christ. 
and time is short. So Paul is, is sharing Christ uh, everywhere uh, in the market daily with them that met with him. Verse 18, then certain philosophers, the lovers of wisdom of two unique and, and completely separate groups. One was the Epicureans, verse 18. Uh, these were those who believed that we were created by the gods and then the gods stepped out and just left us to our own devices and they did not really care what we did. The Epicureans believed that the best thing that we could do uh, was just whatever we wanted to do. If it feels good, do it. They had a very hedonistic view of life uh, and immorality and drunkenness and anything that fulfilled and brought you pleasure uh, was okay according to the Epicureans. Verse 18 again, it says, not only the Epicureans and of the Stoics. The Stoics are at the complete other end of the spectrum. They too believe that God's created us and then stepped out and left us to our own devices to prove us to see if we were worthy uh, of this world and worthy of life. And so to the Stoics, they believed in living a very austere life, uh, a very regimented lifestyle, and uh, they shunned all types of uh, the weaknesses of the flesh and so forth. So you have these two extremes here, and they encountered him. We, we were basically stopping here last week the word encounter means they sought him out they'd heard about this guy going through the marketplace and he's talking about this Jesus this guy that died and was resurrected so they sought him out and some said what will this babbler say uh, the word babbler we looked at it last week uh, if you study the word out it means seed picker it's a derogatory term um, and then they're sort of making fun of Paul. He would have dressed like a Jewish person and stood out for that uh, and so forth. He didn't, he didn't seem to reek of what they considered the high-class culture of an Athenian citizen, that type of thing. Um, and uh, whatever it is that he's preaching, they are minimizing it. They are mocking it by referring to him as a babbler. Other some... He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. So they got idols to everything under the sun, including the sun, uh, all over uh, this, this uh, area. And uh, they're saying he seems to be telling us about strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus. Now the city of Athens... Uh, outside of the places where people lived and, and, and all that kind of stuff, had three major places. We talked about the Agora, the marketplace. Everybody went there. The highest peak in, in, in the city was called the Acropolis. Um, and that is where the, the Parthenon stands today and the ruins of all kinds of other temples and statues uh, that have survived the last couple of thousand years are, are some of them still to be seen there. In Paul's day, uh, none of it was in ruins. It was all very functional uh, and, and uh, anything that could be worshipped was there. The other place was called uh, the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the judicial center. That's like going to Washington, D.C. Uh, that's like seeing the Capitol building and the White House and the Supreme Court and all of that. That was the Areopagus. So these two groups, they found him, they took him, and they brought him unto Areopagus. The, the language implies uh, with, with some type of force. They didn't arrest him. They just weren't giving him much choice. And they brought him to the Areopagus, um, and because that was a judicial area, they wanted to make sure that this guy wasn't doing anything illegal. And if he was, the authorities would be right there saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. This is something they'd never heard before. And so to them, it is a new doctrine. Verse 20, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, Considering some of them called him a seed picker, a babbler, and so forth, there's still a certain curiosity about them. 
Uh, this is something they've not heard. By the way, did you realize even in America, most people, most people haven't heard a clear presentation of the gospel in the day in which we live? It is not unusual to find people that were born and raised here that have no idea who Adam and Eve are. It's, it's not unusual around here with churches on every corner. There are people who have never gone into a church. Um, in, in Paul's day in Athens, this is the first time the gospel message is reaching this place. So this is brand new to them. This is very, very strange to them. Uh, how many grew up in some kind of a church? I'm not necessarily saying it was, it was Bible preaching. Uh, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. I heard a false gospel there, but, you know, I heard the birth of Christ and the miracles and the, the death, burial, and resurrection. How many grew up, you would say, in a church that at least you had that much of a background? Okay. So when we heard the truth of the gospel and, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church... It's not strange to us. We, we grew up with that, okay? Uh, I grew up in the day and age in public school uh, that uh, we sang Christmas carols, and uh, there were Christmas plays, uh, and the Christmas plays weren't all about, you know, uh, you know, how the Grinch saved Christmas and how Scooby-Doo saved Christmas and how every other cartoon character imaginable saved Christmas. It was, it was the Christmas story. How many grew up in that world, Okay. Um, you got to understand today, it's not that way. There are a whole bunch of people who have no idea what it's about. In Athens, they had no clue. So they said, we've heard that you're, you're teaching these strange things. We want to know what it means. So it's, a, it's almost a, a good thing on their part. It's a great opportunity for Paul. And then there's a parenthesis in verse 21. For all the Athenians... And strangers which were there. People traveled to Athens because of its reputation as a place of learning and philosophy. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's, that's all they did. There, some of these people didn't even have jobs. They just came in. A lot of times their wives worked. Socrates, one of the world's uh, most famous philosophers, um, Socrates didn't hold down a job. His family lived in poverty. His wife worked uh, trying to put food on the table. By the way, did you know that Karl Marx, the founder of communism, uh, was a lazy good-for-nothing that did nothing, and his wife had a job and supported the family and so forth? Uh, but uh, that's the way it was. But here's the description. Now, remember, these are the people that called him a seed picker, right? They spent their time in nothing else but either to hear, or either to tell, or to hear some new thing. So who really was the seed pickers? It sounds like they were, basically. Uh, if they were alive today, these would be the ones who live on social media 24-7. It is amazing to me that sometimes I can, I can post a prayer request at 2 in the morning and within seconds there are people that like it or comment on it. If I post something 12 hours later, they're the same people that are commenting on it and liking it almost immediately. It's like, do you just, do you not have a life? Um, and so, you know, the Bible puts that little description there, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. This is the Acropolis. The Areopagus was a section of Mars Hill uh, where the, the judicial business was done. And he said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, he wasn't insulting them per se. Um, he, was, he was stressing uh, as he looked around and saw a city wholly given to idolatry in verse 16. When he says, I, I perceive that ye are too superstitious, he's actually saying that you are literally addicted to worship. You're addicted to worship. Uh, the, the, the word too means you're given over much to superstition, to the study and the, 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 the realm of the supernatural. Um, he's, he's actually appealing somewhat to their intellect because they would have agreed with him on that. Now, he's going to back up that statement. For as I passed by and beheld 
your devotions, your objects of worship, your temples, your statues, and everything that, that uh, you do for them, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. We know that in Egypt, they worship some 360 or 70 different gods, goddesses, and forces of nature. They worshiped uh, animals and, and fish and birds and frogs and all types of things like that, the sun, the moon, the stars, and then a bunch of gods and goddesses that they made up along the way. Um, in in uh, Hinduism, in India, there are something like three million gods and goddesses that are a part of that pantheon and so forth. Uh, we're not exactly sure how many gods and goddesses the Athenians had because by Paul's time, they were drawing in things that they brought from other lands when, when uh, Alexander the Great had conquered them. But, he, but just in case they missed one, Apparently, they had built an altar, and it just had the inscription to the unknown God. So sort of like the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. They had one to the unknown God, um, and they, they did that because they didn't want to offend a God they might not have known of. So Paul had seen that. He said, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. You, ought, you uh, obviously believe that there is another God, you just don't know anything about him, and you've built an, an altar to him, and that's who I want to talk to you about. He's going to have their attention. Now, he's got some important things to say. Paul's sermons are not uh, alliterated. They don't come in a fancy outline. He's just laying out truth to them. Look at verse 24. God that made the world... And all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. See, they believed that Diana lived in her temple. They believed that Zeus lived in his temple. And when you went there, you were going to the house of Zeus, that type of thing. He said, the God that made the world doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. So basically, he was just obliterating the value and the veracity of anything that was around them, whether it was a statue, uh, the Parthenon at the top of the hill, uh, any of those things. Uh, he's letting them know that the, the God he's talking about is the one that created us. Now, the God he's about to present to them is different than what they believe. They believe that their God's created man then just walked away and let man do his own devices while they're busy up on Mount Olympus and so forth, fighting with each other and, and living immorally and so on and so forth. And every now and then uh, looking down to see how we're doing and then back to their own thing. He's talking to them about a God that created them. He's talking about a God that is beyond uh, a, a, a place where he would live within a temple. Verse 25, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth uh, to all life and breath and all things. As Paul walked around the Agora, he would see statues to the Greek heroes like Achilles, Hercules, and others who became known as demigods. They were half God and half man. Sometimes he would see their statues to Apollo uh, and various other gods, and the, their priests, the followers of those gods or demi, demigods, would come along at various times of the year, and they would, they would drape them in, in elaborate robes. Sometimes they put crowns upon their head. They would often, almost on a daily basis, for some of them, bring food and lay it in front of them, uh, sometimes if you go into like a, a Chinese restaurant, things like that, you'll see a little statue of Buddha uh, right inside the main door and there'll be a little bowl there and it'll have rice and it'll have uh, pieces of fruit. How many have ever noticed that? Uh, they believe that that's how they're worshiping it. And Paul is saying the God that I'm declaring to you um, we, he doesn't need us to do any of those things. He doesn't need us to take care of him. He takes care of us. Uh, he is God, verse 26. 
and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The Athenians believed in a doctrine called the master race. Does that sound familiar? Somebody else believed in that. Adolf Hitler, it was part of Nazi theology, a master race. Um, in India, they believe in a master race. Uh, they have caste, C-A-S-T-E system in India. The top caste is called the Brahmins. They are the rulers and the priests, um, and they are believed to have descended from lighter-skinned people to the north of them, and the color of their skin made them a master race. Does any of that sound familiar, that type of thing? Um, and the Athenians believed uh, that they were part of the master race. Some of that goes all the way back down, uh, back in history to Alexander the Great, some 400 years for Christ as he conquered the world. They saw that as the sign that we are the masters of the world. And for a very brief time, uh, they, they ruled uh, the entire ancient world. Paul is getting rid of that, that notion of a master race. The, Jews, or the, the Athenians considered everybody else in the world to be a barbarian. Notice what he said again, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth. Um, I don't care what color a person is. I don't care what language they speak. I don't care from what color they, or from what nation, or what part of the world they hail from. Um, you can take the blood of someone from the jungles of Africa and transfuse it into somebody from Chicago, as long as it's the right blood, the same blood type A or you know O or B or whatever it happens to be. Um, he's made us all of one blood. Um, Racism doesn't belong in the Bible. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not part of God's plan even a little bit. Now, this is a hard pill for the Athenians to swallow because they've automatically assumed that they are just, they are just better than everybody else in the world. They're the, they're the master race. So he's introduced to them a God that created everything in verse 24. He's introduced them to a God that takes care of them and does not need them to take care of him. He's now introduced them to the God who is the God of everybody, who created everybody, and that he is actually in control of the affairs of the world and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. If you remember when we studied the book of Daniel a number of years ago, Daniel had some visions uh, uh, that were prophecies about the, the kingdoms that were going to arise. Uh, there was the kingdom of Babylon. For example, they saw uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream with that giant image that he saw, and the head was made of gold, and the shoulders and arms were made of silver, the chest was made of brass. Um, the legs were made of iron and the feet part of iron and clay. And Daniel interpreted that and let him know these are the kingdoms, the empires that are going to rise. He said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you as Babylon, you're the head of gold. And after you is going to come an inferior kingdom of silver. That was the Persians. The Bible even named the Medes and the Persians in the process of these visions. Uh, then the, the belly of brass, that was Greece. And, and the legs of iron, that was the Roman Empire and so forth. He saw four diverse beasts come out and all of them were prophetic. Uh, I mean, down in amazing detail of the empires that would rise. And it was God repeating to Nebuchadnezzar, the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. By the way, God has not abdicated that role. We may not understand everything going on in our world, but God is still in control. We've got, we've got to reconcile ourselves to that Bible truth. And for the Greek people that are listening to him in verse 26, and hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitation. There was a day that, that Greece was just a bunch of little city-states. Athens and Sparta, Athens and Sparta, 
were the two most famous of them. Um, under Alexander the Great, all of that got brought together. And again, for a very brief time, the Greek Empire went beyond Macedonian Greece, went across the Aegean Sea, and took over what, uh, what was once Persia and Babylon all the way down into Egypt. Alexander and the Greek people, by extension, controlled the largest empire the world had ever seen to that time. By Paul's day, the Greek empire and Athens itself was all shrunk down. They no longer ruled anything except Athens. And Paul is letting them know. He's actually reminding them of the history of which they were so proud. You at one time owned everything, and now you're just back here to your city-state once again. Do you understand God's in control of all that? He's teaching them the nature of the one true God. And why? Why did God do this? He's created us. God cares for us, doesn't need us to care for him. Uh, God is in control of everything, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord. God did all this because he wanted man to seek the Lord. If haply, they might feel after him, meaning we sense in life there's something missing. I've got a good job. I've got a nice house. I've got a nice car. I've got all this, but I'm still missing something. Um, there, there's God's created man uh, so that man needs God. And um, he said if, if a person senses that they're to seek the Lord. I, I preached in chapel last Friday in, in our Christian school that um, there, are, there, there are examples all throughout the Bible of people who sought the Lord. Um, some of our students are here. They'll remember this. I had Brother Rob stand, I think it was Brother Rob stand over here, and I think my cordless mic's on, but I'll just stay here. Brother Rob stood over here. He was King Solomon. On, on the day that Solomon was crowned king, and he went and offered a bunch of sacrifices, the Lord appeared to Solomon. We think he was about 20 years old when he became the king of Israel. The Bible never gives a date, but based on other events in his life, we think he was about 20. The Lord said to Solomon, ask what I will give thee, um, whatever you want, blank check. And Solomon's immediate response was, you've shown great mercy to my father David in that you've made one of his sons the king of Israel. You've made me king, and he said, and I'm like a child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I've never run a kingdom before. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. And, and this is a great people. They're, they're like the dust of the earth. There are, there are so many millions of people and, and I'm supposed to be king over them. I've never done this before. He said, give me a wise, give me an understanding heart so that I can do this right. Solomon was seeking God's help. And God was so pleased that he found somebody that was seeking after him that he not only gave Solomon wisdom like no other human being had had before or since that time, but God gave him wealth, God gave him peace in his empire, uh, and, and so forth, so that in, in, in the days when Solomon was right with God and stayed like that, Solomon was the most famous king in the world. The Bible says that other kings would come to him seeking advice on how to run a country, how to be a good king. They would come to him. His wisdom was legendary. God gave him a wealth that we cannot even possibly fathom. We know from, from the book of Second Chronicles, Solomon uh, had 40,000 horses. Do you know how much money it takes to take care of one horse? That's an expensive hobby. Um, Tim now has me with critters. None of them slither or crawl or anything. He, he put a fish tank in my office. And I told him, I said, that's as far as it goes. If you think there's a snake coming in, the, in there, you are just, it's not going to happen. That snake will starve to death. That's not going to happen. Um, pets can be an expensive thing. Uh, regardless of what it is, but a horse, I, it's a lot. He had 40,000 of them. Just think how much money he spent on shovels. <laughs> that was the man who sought after God. I had Ryan uh, Urbanowitz stand over here, 
and he was King Rehoboam, um, father and son, same country, same lineage, same family, supposedly the same faith. But when Rehoboam became king, uh, when Solomon was king, uh, there was no temple. They didn't have the highway system. There weren't 40,000 horses. His father lived in a, in a house that Hiram, king of Tyre, built, but it was nothing like the multiple palaces that Solomon built. Solomon spent a lifetime building a nation, and God blessed it. Israel expanded to their largest borders in its entire history. Rehoboam just inherited all that. He grew up as a, as a, as a prince that was pampered and favored, um, he never went without. Uh, he, he always had anything that he wanted, that type of thing. He became king, and on the very first day uh, uh, when he was crowned king, the people came and said, look, your dad did a lot for our country, but man, did we pay high taxes to build those roads and all those other things. Is it, it's time that we get a break. Let's have some tax relief. And Rehoboam, it seems like was being a wise young man, said, Give me three days and come back and I'll give you an answer. So he went to his father's counselors. They'd helped Solomon build an empire and said, what should we do? He said, the people are right. Your dad, your dad was hard on them in taxes. Time to give them a break. And if you do, you show them that you care about them. They will serve you and, and you'll have the unity and you'll just continue on what your father started. For some reason, Rehoboam didn't like that. So he went and got his friends, guys that never ran a Kool-Aid stand. Uh, guys that were just like him, princes of Judah, that never worked a day in their life and said, what do you guys think I ought to do? He, they said, you need to just show these people who's boss. You need to let them know that you're not going to be pushed around, that you are the man and you need to speak to them roughly and say, you think my dad was tough. You ain't seen tough yet. And so Rehoboam, in an act of stupidity, came back. Three days later, they came back and he answered after the manner of the young men, created a civil war, lost uh, 10 twelfths of his kingdom that they never got back. Um, it, everything fell apart. And what was the difference between Rehoboam and Solomon? Rehoboam sought after the Lord. I'm sorry, Solomon sought after the Lord. The Bible says uh, in, in uh, I believe it is Second um, Chronicles chapter uh, 12, the Bible says in verse 14 that Rehoboam did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. That's the whole reason. Now, understand, Paul is preaching to these people that they, they've worshipped everything that they could and given it the name God or demigod or something like that or goddess, and he's now introducing them to who this unknown God is that they've been blindly worshipping. He said, you have a God that made you. You have a God that's taken care of you. You have a God that's in control, and he's waiting for you to seek him. I think it's pretty sad that most of the time it's God running around after us instead of us running around after God. God's looking for some people that are seeking him, seeking his will, seeking his word, seeking his way. So Paul says that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall what? Find. Anybody that seeks God's going to find him. You're as close to God as you want to be. You know God as well as you want to know him. That's God's promise. Draw nigh unto God, and he will what? He will draw nigh unto you. Those are promises of God. And Paul is teaching them that truth, though he be not far from every one of us. This was news to them. Remember, they thought the gods made us and then just left us here and they're gone somewhere. Showing up every now and then to stir the pot just a little bit. He said, no, God's right here. For in him, we live and move and have our being. We don't have life apart from God. He, he's everything. And now he does something that um, he doesn't do elsewhere, but he's speaking to these Greek people, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also 
his offspring. He quotes, it's believed uh, either a poet named Epimenides or a, a poet named Erastus, but they would have been well-known names uh, to the people that Paul is speaking to. Uh, they're finding out that Paul's not quite the seed picker that they thought he was, that Paul is a highly educated guy. He knows their history. He knows their poets. He knows their philosophy. Uh, he knows the foundation of their whole, their whole outlook on who the gods are and so forth. But he's narrowed it down that that's all false. The unknown God, the one you ignorantly worship, let me tell you, he's the one that is God. Verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. So their own poets said that we are God's offspring. And so Paul is saying, well, if, if that be true, then we ought to understand that God's not, God's not a, a, something made of silver or stone or wood as you have all around us here in this place. Keep your place here and turn to Isaiah 44. In Athens, Paul is trying to get the, the Greek people to turn from idolatry to the living God. The prophet Isaiah is dealing with God's people. And they have turned from the living God to idols. How sad is that? And so th this is one example of how uh, Isaiah is going to deal with them. Look at uh, verse number 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. What's the word vanity mean? It means emptiness. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witness, witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Your, your idols, you can carve eyes into them, but they don't see out of those eyes. The, you carve a mouth, but they can't talk. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? What can they do? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashion it, uh, fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. So he's talking about somebody uh, fashioning some type of metal into an idol. Yea, he is hungry, his strength faileth, he drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. So he, the carpenter carves out this, this uh, idol out of wood, um, and, you know, he's going to fasten it up, and it's just going to stay in the house. It's not go out. It's not going to go out and walk through the field and, and all that other stuff. He heweth them down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the floor. Forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Uh, then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, warmeth himself, and say, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a God, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Isaiah is showing them how stupid it is that God's people who have the truth, the Jewish people of his day, had turned from the living God. And he says, you're going out in the woods, you cut down a tree, you take part of it, and you use it for firewood to keep warm. Another part you use in, in the uh, stove to cook your food. And the rest of it, you're going you're gonna to grave it into a, a, a statue and you're going to bow down and say, this is my God. He said, how dumb is that? How did you know which part of the tree was the God and which part was just firewood? That type of thing. Uh, how sad when God's people turn away from truth unto falsehood. In Athens, Paul is trying to talk to people that have been raised in falsehood and show them the living God. Verse 30. Back in Acts chapter 17, in the times 
of this ignorance. Um, Paul has already used that word. Uh, he said in verse 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Paul's not trying to demean them. He's not calling them stupid. He's just saying that you, you put it out there and you have no idea who you're worshiping. He's an unknown God to you. You are ignorant of who he really is. Again, he's not trying to insult them here. He's coming back to that same truth and the times of this ignorance. You, you've not known who this God is. You were taught that God's made us and then just kind of dropped us off and took off and left us to our own devices. That's not true. He made us. He's very much involved. He cares for us. He doesn't need us to do a thing for him. He is in control of everything. And he's waiting for you to turn to him and to seek him. He said, the times of this ignorance, he said, you're not ignorant anymore. You know the truth. When we share the gospel with someone, you understand whether they receive or reject it, the bottom line is this, they can never stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. They heard the truth. It was there. Um, and Paul is letting them know the same thing. The times of this ignorance, notice this, God winked at. He's not saying God didn't care that you were worshiping idols. God, God just laughed it off. That's not what he, he is saying there. He's saying that God didn't deal with you because of your idol. He didn't come down and smash you to smithereens because you were worshiping idols. God understood you were doing all that out of ignorance, but that time is done. He now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It is time that the truth is there. You now know the truth. You need to turn from those idols to the living God. Keep your place here, 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul's already been to this church in Thessalonica. He writes to them, and he talks about their own testimony. Look at verse number 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and Achaia, that's southern Greece where Athens is located. But also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Uh, your testimony tells everybody what our ministry among you was about. And here it is, how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what the word repentance is talking about. You're turning from one thing towards another. Um, and the Thessalonians did that. And Paul is now telling the Athenians, that's exactly what you have to do. You, you now know the truth. Please understand, in these few verses, this is not Paul's entire sermon. Uh, we're, we're, getting, we're getting the Cliff's note, notes version of that sermon. We already know that he's preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. We saw that uh, in verse number 18. Uh, we're getting the highlights of this particular sermon, and Paul is letting these people know in no uncertain terms uh, what you used to do in ignorance, uh, you can no longer stand on that. You can no longer get away with it. Uh, God didn't judge you before, but you've got to understand he is commanding you. You're going to have to do something with this message. You need to repent because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, and he's already preached unto them Jesus, they know who he's talking about, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So he's back tying the sermon in from beginning to end to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again, of this matter. There were some that just openly laughed at it, thought it was the dumbest thing they ever heard. Um, any preacher that has ever preached can uh, tell you that uh, it's not uncommon to have people roll their eyes when you preach the word of God. You can show them right from the book and they'll just roll their eyes, they'll laugh. I've had people do sign language in church as I preached and it only involved one finger on their hand. 
in church because they didn't like it. And I mean, you can show them from the I, I People get mad. They clench their jaw the whole nine yards. That's what happened to some of them. They mocked. They mocked. We don't know what they said. They may have laughed at him. Uh, they, they may have just rolled their eyes. They may have done one of these numbers. Uh, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Well, we're not going to get saved today, maybe later. Either way, they rejected Christ. Whether you say no outright or say maybe someday, you have rejected Christ. You have rejected the truth of the gospel. So Paul departed from among them. He's delivered them the message. It's up to them now to do it. By the way, Paul was not a failure. Paul was the only one there that was a success because he did what God told him to do. You're not a failure because you shared the gospel and somebody didn't get saved. You're only a failure if you didn't share the gospel. Because see, that's all God's told us to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We can't make people get saved. Boy, I wish we could. Wouldn't that be great? But we can't do that. All we can do is present it and present it prayerfully, present it lovingly. But, but ultimately, that person has to decide. Paul, he left, but he left successful in the eyes of God because he was faithful. It wasn't the, necessarily the response that he had received in other places. But verse 34, how be it, certain men claved, clave unto him and believed. So most of the people, it seems like, either mocked him or said, ah, come back some other day, maybe we'll get saved then. But there were a few that, that went with him. Uh, they got saved. So he had, a, he had a little bit of fruit, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite. The, the Areopagite, that's the judicial center of Athens. Areopagite was a title. It literally means one of the 12. In Athens, we have nine Supreme Court justices, correct? Uh, every state has two senators, correct? You, you, how many you did know that? Okay, and we've got representatives in the House of Representatives. In Athens, they had 12 men who were the leaders. They were the Areopagites. Uh, they were the ones really in ultimate control of everything in the city of Athens. Every manner of judicial uh, situation to come up, these were the ones who decided the cases. They were the Supreme Court of their day. Uh, they were the president's cabinet of their day. They actually together collectively had the power of a president or a king in the city of Athens. That's how important this group was. One of them, one of the 12 named Dionysius, got saved. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty remarkable. There's not a lot of converts listed here, but one of them was an Areopagite, a woman named uh, Damaris. We don't know anything about her. It is a Greek name. It is assumed she is a Greek woman and others with them. So we don't, we don't see a multitude turning to Christ, getting saved here. Uh, but what we see is a few people got saved. By the way, those few were just as precious in the sight of the Lord as the 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost. Um, we just need to understand that uh, every field is going to yield a different type of harvest. Praise God for a faithful man who went in, and rather than being impressed with all the, the glitz and glamour uh, of Athens and their education and their monuments and all of that, there was a man that was stirred. His spirit was stirred in him. And because of that, he just had to tell these people about Jesus Christ. And yeah, most of them mocked him. And the rest of them said, maybe someday, but there were a few that got saved. In the annals of early church history from what is called the church fathers. The church fathers actually in the first, second, and third century did a lot of writing, uh, things like that. It is believed that this man uh, Dionysius became the uh, pastor of the church at Athens. In their, their history of that time period, uh, they, they state that the church at Athens was never a large church. 
Um, but it was a solid church, and this man became their first pastor. Can you imagine trying to pastor in the shadow of Harvard? We kind of pastor in the shadow of Yale. They turn their noses up because they're just too smart for the gospel, but uh, uh, they just don't realize in the sight of God, they're the ones that are the fools, not us. Someday at the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to they're gonna wish they had chosen differently. So Paul has this ministry, um, and he is going to leave here in chapter 18 and verse 1, and he is going to go to the city of Corinth where he is going to spend the next several years of his life uh, building one of the most famous churches of the New Testament. A lot of good to say about it. Sadly, a lot of negative to say about it, but it's going to be a very unique and powerful ministry there. But we need to stop. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's be a faithful witness. Remember, we're only a failure if we fail to share the gospel. We don't force people to get saved, but, but we succeed when we give them the opportunity. Give out that gospel tract. Follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You're going through the drive through and the Lord says, hey, give them a tract. Uh, you never know what is going to come out of it. Uh, with that said, last Saturday, um, I was uh, coming into Wallingford late in the day. And I was coming down 91, and my daughter Sarah wanted to video chat. And there's, a, there's like a rest area or something up here on 91. How many know what I'm talking about? Um, well, I was right there, and I didn't want to be doing this on my phone, a video chat. And, you know, that's called against the law. Uh, so I pulled off to the rest area real quick, and I, I video chatted with Sarah and all my grandkids and Dylan and so forth and chatted with them. And then as soon as I got done with that, then there was another phone call that came along, so I just sat there and took care of it. And just as I was about ready to get back on the highway and come into, into the church, um, all of a sudden a police car came screaming through the rest area with the sirens blaring, and I glanced back around, and all the lights were flashing and all that kind of stuff. And I'm looking to see if they had chased somebody in, you know, off the highway or something like that, and they just drove straight through. And I looked at where the exit was, and there was this, this uh, plume of smoke just billowing up into the sky. Um, and I assume, well, obviously car fire or something like that. So I just kind of waited a little bit thinking, maybe I'm trapped here, uh, you know, that type of thing, because if it's a fire of that magnitude. But then I saw some other cars leaving, so uh, I decided that I was just going to, you know, See, see if I could get out of there. And as I did so, sure enough, it was on 91. Uh, there was a little white car, and it was just engulfed in flames and smoke going up. Uh, the fire trucks had not, uh, the fire trucks had just arrived, but they hadn't done anything. They hadn't got their hoses out or anything. Police cars all over the place. And there was this young couple standing. They were actually walking back towards the rest area, and they had a few belongings in their arms like this. And she was literally shaking. Um, and, and it was their car. The car had actually exploded. They bought it seven days prior. Can you say lemon? Uh, they had bought it seven days prior, and it exploded, and he had the wherewithal to get it off the highway, and it was gone. It was just, I, I've, I, I've never been that close to anything before, and uh, they were just told by the police, you know, they'd given their information, and they said, you know, we'll, we'll just get in touch with you, and uh, you know, send you the report and all that kind of stuff. I said, can I do anything for you? They said, we, we have to find a ride home. I said, where do you live? They said, New Haven. I said, get in. And they said, we'll give you gas money. I said, I think you need money for other things. I said, just get in. I'll take you home. And he was on the phone much of the time. And uh, so we were trying not to talk as he was trying to get a hold of people and, and so forth. Obviously very, very shaken. Uh, I got them where they needed to be. Somebody was there already to pick them up, but I had already been praying about it and talking to them about it, and I had gospel tracts ready in hand. And just as they were getting ready to get out, I said, look, I, I pastor a Baptist church, and I don't think it was an accident that I was there at that time. I believe this is a divine appointment. I was able to give them a gospel tract. There was somebody waiting on them and so forth. And you could see they were somewhat impatient and they weren't being unkind to me. They were rattled and they were all of those things. I said, my number is on there. Um, I said, there's a message on the back of this uh, that you need to read. Um, this didn't happen by accident today. Um, God puts us in situations 
Not always as dramatic as that. Tonight it was just the drive through lady at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, they're there. Let's be as faithful as the Apostle Paul. And, okay, our political views are fine, but that isn't going to save a soul. What they need is Jesus. What they need is Jesus. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this incredible...